I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. My co-host, Nazmo Dirzadeh, is away this week. Today, we're going to talk about Hamas the Palestinian militant group that controls Gaza. Last week, Hamas reached a ceasefire with Israel after their fourth war in the past 14 years. The group fired more than 4,000 rockets at Israel, provoking Israel's bombing of Gaza. Hamas is not the only protagonist on the Palestinian side of the conflict, but it is the one that gets the most attention. Israel points at Hamas to argue that there's no peace to be had with the Palestinians. Genocidal terrorist organization that long before any embassy has spoken about Hamas was calling to kill every single Jew. We can't afford to just say, well, that's hyperbole. Maybe they don't mean it. We were attacked by Hamas on uh, our national day, Jerusalem Day, uh, attacks, unprovoked attacks on Jerusalem. Hamas was founded in the late 1980s as an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. Initially, Israel abetted its rise, hoping to weaken the main Palestinian movement, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, and Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat's Fatah movement. Hamas started getting more international attention during the 1990s and still more during the Second Intifada in 2000 to 2005 when it carried out bombings and other attacks in Israel that mainly targeted civilians. In 2006, it contested and won Palestinian legislative elections. In response, the Quartet, which comprises the US, Russia, the European Union and the UN, imposed conditions for their recognition of the Hamas government. Hamas must, they said, recognize Israel, recognize previous agreements with Israel, and renounce violence. Hamas refused. At the same time, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazin, tried but failed to oust Hamas from the government in Gaza. Since then, a blockade of Gaza by Israel and Egypt has intensified. The humanitarian situation there is dire. Violations of international humanitarian and human rights law are a key driver of high levels of acute vulnerability among Palestinians. Life in Gaza is a painful struggle to get by. You cannot believe how is the complex and difficult life as we are now. All the people, they have no work, they have not employment. If there is a hell on earth, it is the lives of children 
in Gaza today. Repeated efforts to bring Fatah and Hamas together have failed. There was some hope that Palestinian elections this year might do that, but Abu Mazen cancelled those. Hamas is viewed by many world leaders as one of the biggest obstacles, or even the biggest obstacle, to peace. It's designated as a terrorist group by Israel, the US and the EU, yet it remains in control of Gaza. If there were new Palestinian elections, it seems likely Hamas would win. Today we're going to talk to Tarek Bakoni, Crisis Group's senior expert for Israel-Palestine. Before joining Crisis Group, Tarek wrote a book on Hamas. It's called Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. We're going to talk about the movement, what it wants, and whether there's any hope of ending the violence or easing the plight of people in Gaza. Tarek, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Tarek, could we start by talking about this latest bout of fighting? What did Hamas hope to get out of it? Well, Hamas was looking to do two things, really. The first was to position itself as a Palestinian movement that was interested in protecting Palestinians' generally, wherever they may be, against Israeli aggression. And in this specific instance, it was the, the, the prompt or the trigger for the escalation was were the events in Jerusalem, specifically in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where four Palestinian households were being forcibly expelled from their homes to make room for Jewish settlers. The protests that uh, those households began uh, mobilizing within uh, resulted in a lot of repression by Israeli forces. So Hamas was positioning itself as the movement that is coming to the protection, is rallying to defend Palestinians in Jerusalem. And in doing that, is positioning itself as a party, a political party and a movement that is able to safeguard the rights of Palestinians. The Hamas had ulterior motives, uh, the most important of which was that it was looking to break out of its containment in the Gaza Strip. So it had hoped that the Palestinian elections would usher in uh, a future where the, the Palestinian Authority would be able to come back into the Gaza Strip to resume control there and relinquish Hamas from its governance responsibilities there. With those elections now being indefinitely postponed, uh, the movement was looking for other ways to break out of its isolation. This was the fourth war since 2007, but it was the first in which Hamas responded to things sort of happening in Jerusalem. Previous bouts from Hamas's perspective were sort of mostly about easing conditions in Gaza. Yet this time around, None of its actual demands have been met. I mean, the expulsions in Sheikh Jarrah, presumably those are going to continue, even if the court ruling has been postponed. Violence seems to be ongoing against Palestinians in Israel itself, in the uh, West Bank, uh, in East Jerusalem. And there's very little sign that conditions in Gaza are going to ease. So how do you think Hamas is looking back on this sort of latest round of fighting? Well, there's no doubt that Hamas used the latest round of fighting as an absolute victory for the movement. Of course, we can talk about the destruction and the tragic loss of life in the Gaza Strip, which further shackles Hamas in Gaza and increases its burden as a governing authority in the Gaza Strip. But symbolically, the movement has been able to uh, claim a, a, a major victory against Israel for various reasons, including the fact that the Israeli military establishment certainly did not expect that Hamas would rally in support of the Palestinians in Jerusalem. They did not expect that Hamas would rally for any Palestinian cause that isn't specifically the Gaza Strip. They had assumed that the 
uh, equilibrium that have been reached between Israel and Hamas, uh, focused specifically on the Gaza Strip, was sustainable, that Hamas had effectively been contained. Uh, and uh, the Israeli military authority also did not recognize, I think, or, or understand how developed Hamas's military arsenal had become despite the blockade. But just to answer your question, Hamas never gets its demands in ceasefires. And then that's the whole point of the equilibrium that's been established over the course of the, the past 14 years in every ceasefire. Hamas demands that the blockade be lifted. And the blockade is never lifted. The blockade is simply eased for a period of time until the next time that Hamas escalates to pressure Israel into alleviating the blockade. So Tarek, we'll come back in a moment to how other Palestinians view sort of what Hamas has done and and the degree of support it enjoys in Gaza and elsewhere. But could we back up a little bit and talk about the movement itself and its background? We heard some of the, the sort of history up top founded in the late 80s as an offshoot from the Muslim Brotherhood, sort of came to prominence in the Second Intifada with with the bus bombings and and, and other violence. Then it ran in and won Palestinian legislative elections in 2006. It's held Gaza since 2007. If you were to describe the movement now, 14 years after seizing power in Gaza, how would you describe its sort of primary identity? Well, I mean, I think that the, the movement primarily is an Islamist movement and a nationalist movement that is now caught between being a movement in the sense of a movement that exists outside of government that's able to resemble uh, other liberation movements, or that's certainly one facet of its characterization. The other, because of the reality in the Gaza Strip, is that it is a governing authority, uh, obviously not a government with any uh, credible degree of sovereignty because it doesn't control the Gaza Strip. The Israeli government still does. But within the Gaza Strip, it acts as a government. Hamas specifically is sort of balancing between its responsibility as a governing authority over 2 million Palestinians in Gaza and being a movement Uh, that is obviously present in the Palestinian territories, but also present regionally in Turkey, in Qatar, in Egypt, and in all those places, uh, not uh, thinking of uh, itself only as a a public uh, governing body, but as a liberation movement. So I think it's sort of straddling both responsibilities. And what does this governance in Gaza actually look like? How Islamist is it in terms of its provision of services? What sort of role does it enforce for Islam in public life? in Gaza. Hamas is an Islamist movement. It has its roots in the Muslim Brotherhood. It it can trace its roots back to the 1920s in Palestine specifically. And it has an Islamist ideology. So it has schools and charities and and all forms of public uh, services that are rooted in goal of Islamizing society, meaning ensuring that uh, Palestinians in Gaza, Palestinians generally would be its goal, to have Islamic values, to be grounded in Islamic belief and in Islamic principles. But as a governing authority, that hasn't necessarily been as aggressive as people might otherwise expect, or that certainly commentators in in the West or policymakers in the West might see. The movement has been an authoritarian governing body, just like Fatah in the West Bank is. It is much more conservative than Fatah. It's very clear being in Gaza that it's a much more conservative society, that it has had an impact in terms of a more religious uh, veneer in in the public spaces in Gaza. Uh, And and so there's no looking beyond that. Uh, But I think focusing specifically on this uh, overshadows or deflects from its other uh, goals, which are more nationalistic in, in principle. And how do people in Gaza 
view Hamas. The service provision isn't, obviously, a lot of it's related to the blockade, but the services are, are collapsing. There's a lot, enormous amount of hardship, even leaving aside the recent bombardment. How much do people blame Hamas for that? There's a lot of resentment in the Gaza Strip. The primary cause of this resentment, of course, is the is the blockade and the Israeli occupation. Also, the very harsh policies that the Egyptian government currently takes against the Gaza Strip. So there's a lot of resentment towards those uh, external forces. But Hamas faces a lot of that resentment as well. As you say, as a governing authority, that if only Hamas was not in power, uh, if only Hamas was not currently the governing authority in the Gaza Strip, our situation would look different. But there's another facet here, which is that Palestinians in Gaza are proud because they view Hamas as a military movement that's been able to stand up to Israel. They view Hamas and their role as Palestinians in Gaza, as the protectors of the Palestinian Liberation Project, in the sense that there is no other place uh, that gives forward a kind of active agenda for Palestinian resistance and that is able to stand up militarily to Israel. And so in that, you know, setting aside its Islamist ideology and setting aside even its nationalistic goals, just by virtue of being a military power that's able to get concessions from Israel by force, that's a sense of pride for Palestinians in Gaza and, and beyond Gaza as well. So Tarek, let, let's talk about beyond Gaza. So this, this latest round of fighting seems to have left President Abu Mazen and Fatah even more bereft of support than they were before. But, but has Hamas picked up that support? It's complicated. I think Palestinians generally are fed up with the factions. They view both factions, Hamas and Fatah, as factions that have become more interested in their own factional interests and that have been unable to push forward any kind of effective liberation uh, structure. However, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is reviled because of its security coordination with Israel. In that sense, Hamas is often seen, again, as a source of pride that the movement is able to uh, put forward a, a different path towards Israel, that it is able to engage in a way that is rooted in Palestinian rights and in the demands for freedom and justice and equality and push back against Israel. I say that with some hesitation because there's also a lot of fear uh, among Palestinians about what an Islamist ideology would mean for Palestinians. The fact that this military power now is grounded in an Islamist ideology is not uncomplicated for Palestinians, certainly not Palestinians outside of the Gaza Strip. And Tarek, we've talked before about how over this latest round of violence there was this uh, expression of Palestinian solidarity, not only between West Bank and East Jerusalem and Gaza, but also among Palestinians in Israel itself. There's a sort of unified street emerging, and obviously it's difficult at this early stage to get the sense of how much that's a game changer or, or you know, whether that's something that, that's going to be lasting. But it certainly was a feature of this latest round of violence. How does Hamas relate to that street well, one of the most interesting things that have happened in the past two weeks is this effort by Palestinians, certainly Palestinians on the street, as you say, so a, a sort of a, an organic popular movement, another intifada or the makings of another intifada. There's a sense that that uprising uh, was an effort to overcome the fragmentation. And this is something that we see very much with Hamas. Hamas is not restricted to the Gaza Strip. Hamas had been a part and parcel of the Palestinian political fabric beyond the Gaza Strip. But what we've seen over the years, certainly since 2007, is an effort to contain Hamas in the Gaza Strip and to 
uh, entirely decimate its presence outside the Gaza Strip, certainly in the West Bank, by the security coordination agreements that the Palestinian Authority has w- with Israel, which which it used to to suppress Hamas in the West Bank. But the the reason that the past two weeks were so interesting is because Hamas was able to position itself alongside this popular movement that was claiming to, uh, and that is mobilizing on behalf of Palestinians as a people, not Palestinians in their specific locales. And in doing that, Hamas was able to break out of what I I view as its cage. And what we see now is Hamas really trying to ride the wave of this popular Palestinian uprising to break out of its containment in Gaza. So Tariq, let's talk a little bit about that, this sort of question about the sort of reality of Hamas's relationship with Israel. I mean, obviously they're enemies, but there's still this idea that in reality Hamas serves Israel's purposes by keeping the Palestinian leadership divided and Hamas benefits itself from that. I mean, how, how does this idea sit within Hamas that in fact the sort of lack of Palestinian reconciliation, the fact that Hamas is strong, the fact that it's uh, designated by so many governments as a terrorist organization, all that serves Israel's purposes. First, I should qualify when we talk about Hamas. Hamas is a multifaceted movement. It has multiple constituencies all over the region. So when I say Hamas, I'm really talking about a movement that's quite complex that internally has different competing power structures, and many of its discussions and internal deliberations are quite divisive. But generally, Hamas is a pragmatic movement and is able to use its relationship with Israel to its advantage. And as you say, the the dynamic that has emerged between the Gaza Strip and Israel over the course of the past 14 years has been extremely beneficial to both parties. For Israel, Hamas acts as the perfect fig leaf, as the perfect ex- excuse that justifies Israel putting the Gaza Strip under blockade. The Gaza Strip was actually placed under blockade long before Hamas came into power. Israel had found the Gaza Strip to be a very problematic strip of land for decades. Successive Israeli governments have taken various measures from uh, attempts at economic uh, pacification to military assaults to uh, blockades to try to pacify the Gaza Strip, ultimately leading in 2005 to what we know as a disengagement, which is an effort to put the Gaza Strip to the side of the Palestinian territories and sever it from the rest of the Palestinian territories, allowing Israel to maintain its occupation of the West Bank without worrying that it is becoming a Jewish minority in that land. So what Hamas does is it provides Israel with the perfect excuse for the blockade. So it's been in the Israelis' interest to maintain Hamas as a governing authority, uh, functioning just enough to survive and to care for Palestinians in Gaza, but not, not survive enough to develop a sophisticated military arsenal. For Hamas, its its benefit from this situation is that it has a strip of land uh, that it is able to govern at least internally without Israeli forces being present in its midst and to use that space to develop the kind of military power that we saw in this latest escalation. So Tarek, you talk about the different factions within Hamas. That's between its political wing and its military wing? So there are different constituencies within Hamas. There's the, the most basic division is Hamas's military wing and Hamas's political bureau. So are two parts of the same movement. But even within those structures, there are several constituencies. Uh, so there's Hamas's membership in the Gaza Strip, Hamas's membership in the West Bank, and then there's Hamas's membership in the external leadership. So the, the, the leaders who are based in Qatar and, um, 
Egypt. And then internally, there are Hamas's members within prison. Any Palestinian political faction has a great deal of representation in Israeli prisons. So Hamas adopts a consensus approach uh, towards any kind of major decision. Uh, Voting needs to happen on major issues within all these different constituencies, and it trickles up within the organization into the leadership of the uh, political bureau, which makes all the the major decisions. So if we think of some of the kind of big positions that the movement has taken, like the quartet conditions, for example, like its position on the quartet conditions. How much debate is there within the movement about recognising Israel, about recognising previous agreements, renouncing violence, or at least conducting operations according to international law? Well, I mean, the debates are very divisive, and I'll deal with each of these separately. In terms of the recognition of the state of Israel, Hamas in 2017 put forward an addendum to the charter uh, that had been published shortly after the movement's creation. The charter was published in 1988. So under Khaled Mishal's leadership in 2017, it issued an addendum in which it said that it would accept the creation of a Palestinian state on the 1967 borders. And Tarek, I should just come in to say that Khaled Mashal is the Hamas leader based in Doha. At, at the moment, he was just re-elected again uh, earlier this year. But yes, so the, the, they issued an addendum uh, to their charter saying that they accept uh, the creation of a Palestinian state on 1967 borders without explicit recognition of the state of Israel. This for Hamas is a major concession. And I think it's the, the furthest that the movement uh, is able to go at this time. Uh, I should say that this is more uh, progressive than uh, the current and former Israeli governments have taken in terms of recognizing uh, the notion of partition around the 1967 lines. So that's on the issue of recognition. Tariq, can I just jump in? Presumably, the I mean, if you're recognizing a Palestinian state on the 67 borders, that's an implicit recognition of Israel, even if not an explicit one. Absolutely. But the quartet conditions are calling for an explicit recognition. So uh, so that's on, on the issue of recognition, right? On the issue of respecting past agreements and using uh, the, the international law as a measure for their, their armed struggle. Uh, no Israeli government has committed to the terms of past peace agreements with uh, Palestinians. And the Israeli uh, authorities, certainly the Israeli military establishment, uses excessive force uh, when it's dealing with Palestinians in ways that uh, various international organizations, including the International Criminal Court, has shown to rise to the level of possible war crimes. So Hamas views the quartet conditions as a biased form of uh, international diplomacy that is aimed at marginalizing the movement. And that is not being place in a way uh, that uh, is equitable with with the Israelis as well. And what about uh, some of the tactics that it's used? I mean, it uh, was responsible for a lot of civilian deaths. It it deliberately targeted civilians uh, during the Second Intifada. Obviously, the rocket attacks are uh, indiscriminate, kill civilians. How much is that debated within the movement? This has been debated within the movement extensively. The sense within Hamas was that there, obviously there's a moral question of targeting civilians, but there's also the strategic question of what it means to adopt an armed struggle agenda against a nuclear superpower. And and what what might that mean for Palestinians, especially since Palestinians historically, the PLO before Hamas had adopted armed struggle, which managed to bring the Palestinian issue onto the global stage, but obviously marginalized the PLO as, as a terrorist organization. 
conditions. So there's a lot of very uh, divisive and very uh, passionate debates within the movement around this. There's there's very much the sense among within Hamas, but also among Palestinians, that armed struggle against a violent occupation uh, is something that is acceptable under international law. But specifically for Hamas, the issue of suicide bombing halfway through the Second Intifada became increasingly problematic. And the movement had initially made the calculus that if they were able to, to cause sufficient civilian pain within Israel, that the Israelis would force their government to relinquish the occupation. Under Sharon's leadership, this is Prime, uh, Prime Minister Sharon in, in, in Israel, Ariel Sharon, uh, it, it, the, the opposite happened. And the more that the, the Israeli civilians struggled and uh, hurt under the campaign of suicide bombing, the more actually Sharon expanded the, the, the entrenchment of the Israeli occupation in Palestinian territories. And so Hamas uh, slowly moved out of its use of suicide bombing and started adopting missiles, which also became its only or primary means of resistance after the, the separation barrier was erected between the West Bank and Israel and after Hamas became blockaded in the Gaza Strip. So one of the things that Hamas is often pushing for as part of ceasefire deals is the easing of the blockade of Gaza. But the counter-argument to that is that without the blockade, Hamas would be armed even more heavily, like Hezbollah, for example, or the Houthis in Yemen, that it could build up an array of rockets that could actually overwhelm Israel's defense system, the Iron Dome. What do you make of that argument? The issue with Hamas, very from the Israeli point of view, is always seen through a security prism and through the, the, the kind of military argument that you just laid out, that if we lift the blockade, then Hamas will develop itself into a military power. That is a view that is trying to deal with the Palestinian question only militarily, that, you know, we can lift the blockade, but the occupation will stay in place and then Hamas will develop an arsenal. But there's no in, no way forward to deal with the Gaza Strip and to deal with the blockade and broadly to deal with Hamas without addressing the Palestinian question politically, in the sense that ha- there, there needs to be no reason for Hamas as a military power uh, to uh, fight against Israel and to fight against Israeli occupation, right? And the reason that Hamas has the kind of popular support that it does is that because Palestinians buy into its armed struggle agenda, they buy into the need to resist Israel militarily. If the blockade is simply lifted and the occupation is left in place, then yes, absolutely, Hamas will work to develop a military uh, uh, infrastructure in order to fight the occupation. But if the blockade is lifted as part of a broader movement that's aimed to achieve a political resolution to Palestinian, to the Palestinian question, then that, uh, that, that equation changes fundamentally and Hamas will lose much of its uh, domestic support and its local support for waging armed struggle against Israel. Egypt apparently behind the scenes brokered this latest ceasefire and Hamas does seem to have relations with Cairo despite President Sisi's government being sort of bitterly opposed to the Muslim Brotherhood. Obviously Hamas has relations with Qatar like many Islamist movements, Khalid Mashal that we talked about is in Doha. So do you want to say a little bit about how Hamas's foreign relations have evolved or looked amid a lot of upheaval in the region? Yeah, I mean, Hamas has been very, very adept at managing all the regional tensions and placing itself as a movement that explicitly tries to stay away from uh, the very 
fast moving uh, changes in uh, in allyship between different states and, and non-state actors in the region. So it tries to position itself as outside of those to maximize the kind of support that it can get. It had learned from the PLO and Yasser Arafat siding with Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War that it should not get embroiled in regional rivalries. The most notable break was when it uh, took a position against uh, the Assad uh, regime in, in Syria and positioned itself uh, in support of the uh, of the Syrian people and, and obviously ended up moving its external base from Damascus uh, elsewhere in the region. Now, its relationship with Egypt specifically has been quite tumultuous, uh, certainly from the after the revolution in Egypt. The Sisi regime had taken a very strong position against Hamas, obviously because it's the same position position that it's taken against the Muslim Brotherhood domestically within Egypt. Uh, but what we saw in the latest ceasefire was a shift from that and a very active attempt by Egypt to not relinquish the mantle of negotiating the ceasefire to either Qatar or Turkey. And the reason that Egypt did that is because of what we saw last year, which are the normalization agreements, which expanded Israeli relations with certain Gulf states, the UAE and Bahrain. And Egypt feared very much being marginalized diplomatically by other Arab states. And in this case, it wanted to demonstrate that it still has the capacity to have a, a, a major diplomatic role in the region, specifically on the question of Palestine, which is one that's that's watched on, on the Arab street. And at the moment, US Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in the region. And one of the things that US officials say he's trying to do is engage partners to ensure assistance reaches Gaza in a way that benefits the people there, but not Hamas. Is that feasible while the blockade is in place? Well, we just talked about how the Israelis think about uh, the Palestinians through a military prism. What the much of the international community, the way that they think about the Palestinians is through an economic or humanitarian prism. So thinking that we can deal with the Gaza Strip in an economic sense, so to ease the blockade, uh, to allow for humanitarian goods to come in, to ease the suffering of civilians in, in the Gaza Strip while maintaining the overall structure of the occupation and of the blockade is really looking away from dealing with the political issue at hand. It allows the blockade to stay in place uh, because Palestinians in Gaza are not going towards starvation because humanitarian goods are entering the Gaza Strip. But all the while, the blockade stays in place and is not uh, something that is fundamentally dealt with. Presumably, though, Tarek, to get back to anything uh, political, you need a unified Palestinian leadership. And that gets back again to this sort of question of reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas and the elections that Abu Mazen has indefinitely postponed, sort of de facto, it seems, cancelled. You know, they were supposed to be one way of sort of overcoming that division. Is that the best way? Is it is it a return to elections? And, and, and what about elections for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, in which Hamas isn't represented? Let's talk about the issue of reconciliation to, be, to begin with. Internally, I think there is so much resentment with the factions because the sense on the street is that the Hamas and Fatah are now engaged in a zero-sum game, that neither party is willing to really compromise to achieve effective unity, and that each party is looking to completely destroy the national project of the other party. And so we, the, this division has ended up lasting 14 years, largely because of the ineptitude of the Palestinian leadership, both Hamas and Fatah. But 
looking from the outside in, there's an enormous investment by Israel and by the international community to make sure that division is sustained and that any form of unity is actually opposed. And we go back to the issue of the quartet conditions. The quartet conditions are put in place in order to prevent any kind of Hamas a possibility of entering the political establishment. I think Hamas is very much interested in entering into the PLO and becoming a party that has a seat at the table in terms of thinking about the broader national liberation project. So I think elections are a really important step in the direction of resuscitating the Palestinian political institutions. Tarek, if we talk about political Islam, obviously in parts of the region, there's still a lot of sort of resistance to the Muslim Brotherhood in the UAE, in particular the United Arab Emirates. But in other ways, sort of things are changing. Tunisia had an Islamist government for for some time. For a while, the Muslim Brotherhood held power in Egypt and had reasonable relations with the West. Outside the, the, the Middle East, the US is negotiating with the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban keep their cards fairly close, but I think it's fair to say that their idea of Islamist rule is harder line than that of Hamas. And yet it's Hamas that's still beyond the pale, at least in sort of the eyes of, of, of many Western leaders. Do you see any sign that that's going to change? I don't see any appetite for that changing. And the primary reason for that is because in the case of Israel-Palestine, the issue really isn't political Islam or Hamas. The issue is that there's no political interest in putting the kind of diplomatic effort that's needed to actually resolve this conflict. And in that sense, uh, Hamas becomes a, a particularly uh, important and particularly useful tool to avoid dealing with the conflict. You know, you started this podcast by saying that many view Hamas as, as an obstacle, if not the main obstacle to uh, any kind of peace with the Palestinians. And I venture that if Hamas were to be removed from the equation tomorrow, not only would there be no peace between Israelis and Palestinians, but the blockade on the Gaza Strip will also not be lifted because Hamas is only one element of the equation here. The main uh, the main equation is about demographics and about uh, trying to isolate 2 million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and remove them away from the demographic equation between the river and the sea. So the issue isn't engaging with political Islam, which is an issue that you know, we need to be talking about across the region. But uh, aside from that conversation, the issue in Palestine isn't Hamas. There's no political interest to deal with the Palestinian question, be it Islamist or otherwise, in, in certainly not in the US, but also elsewhere in the West. Tarek, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hold Your Fire is a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find more of Crisis Group's work at crisisgroup.org or follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks very much to our producers, May Francis and Ida Holly Nambi, and thanks especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question, a comment, a rating or a review, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.